before I read our text, a couple thoughts. As David prayed, there's unrest in our country. We see it from outside of ourselves. We see it from inside. A lot of y'all don't know this, but about a year ago, our church, along with a handful of other PCA churches, both in Texas and in North Carolina, and a few others, uh, was targeted by a group of people to put some propaganda out in the parking lot. See, it wasn't a very popular thing that the PCA would begin to talk about its own roots in how we have not done well in the areas of uh, race and in the areas of uh, standing up for those who have been uh, marginalized um, by individuals and by systems. And so our parking lot was littered with uh, a manifesto, an apologetic, talking about why it was unbiblical that there should be any sort of integration of the races. We quickly got these pamphlets out of the parking lot. I was horrified. Our elders were horrified by what we saw. But it was a reminder that the enemy of God is actively at work in this world to sow seeds of disunity. So whenever you hear me or anyone else in the church talk about unity and talk about what it means to be in this communion of the saints, don't hear for a second some sort of a vanilla saccharine kumbaya where we all sit around and just think happy thoughts. But if you ever think for a second that the idea of union, of unity, of the communion of the saints is anything other than a biblical concept, we need to talk. And so as we saw disgusting displays of intimidation and violence happening in Charlottesville yesterday and as it continues to happen today, we pray for our churches, Trinity Presbyterian Church in Charlottesville, our RUF campus pastors on the university campus right now that are in the midst of trying to help people make sense of what's going on. And we don't think for a second that what we saw there is simply a window into a microcosm of the world. Beloved, it's not a window, it's a mirror. Don't think for a second that the thing, the spirit of the age that would animate folks to sow seeds of disunity and hatred are limited to them out there. Because it's me in here. So I didn't change our text this morning. I didn't change the order of worship. I didn't 
put a, pull an 11th hour thing to try and address something that's going on in the world because God in his providence already has us addressing it. What does it mean to say, I believe in the holy Catholic church and the communion of saints? That's what's before us this morning. You'll turn, if you would, with me to Hebrews chapter 2. I'm going to come back to the Psalm 22 reading in the midst of our sermon. For now, I want to look at Hebrews chapter 2 and see what God has to say to us this day by his Spirit. Chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. Stand, if you would. That was just the pre-introduction to the introduction. I'm going to be on a roll today. Just hang tight. Pack a lunch. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is God's word. It's absolutely true. It's given in love. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would speak for your servants who are listening. We pray that you would be with the one who is doing the speaking. Forgive him his sins for their many. We want to see Jesus and him only. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Be seated. I keep saying this because I want you to keep remembering this. The creed is the essential things. It is the foundational things. And remember the very, very first week we took an entire sermon on two words. I believe. And we said this saying, I believe, is not some sort of cognitive agreement it's not that that sounds like a good idea, but it is believe into. 
It is, I am going to believe into these things and I'm going to live in them as if they are the only things that matter. It's a weighty thing to take on the words of the creed. In fact, uh, for many in the early church, up through the early Middle Ages, um, one of the most significant liturgical things the people of God could do together in the context of worship was bear upon their lips together the words of the creed. Because it was in that moment, it was a declarative statement in that moment, over and above all the other things that are being said and manifested in the world, for the people of God with one voice together to say, this is who we are and this is what we believe. The thing that we have to deal with is what I've been saying about there are things that we can disagree on and disagree heartily about But then there are these essential things that if we don't have it right on this, we fundamentally don't have it right on who the God of the Bible is and what it is that we've actually said we hold in common with what we have been given through faith throughout the ages. So with all of that as pretext, let me ask you this. When you think of the church, is the church necessary for your life or is it just nice? In other words, can you be a Christian without the church? Think very carefully before you answer that. And just so we're very clear, because I know we have some in here that uh, didn't necessarily grow up in a tradition that, uh, that, that was uh, reciting the creed. When it says, I believe in one holy and Catholic church, that's Catholic little c. That's Catholic in the, in the sense of the universal church, right? We don't have the Jesus of the Presbyterians and the Jesus of the Baptists. We have the Jesus of the Bible, So when it says, I believe in the holy Catholic church, you're not pledging your allegiance to Rome. You're saying, I believe that Jesus gave his life for his church. His church doesn't exist without Jesus. And it is for the church that Jesus gave his life, as we just sung. Is the church necessary or is it just nice? Because how you answer that is going to change whether or not you can actually say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. I believe that this is what, is, uh, that what, is what Jesus gave his life for. Because look, it is not by accident that out of the creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and was buried, He descended into hell or to among the dead. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. 
See, what it is, is in that statement, it is by no accident, there are no minced words in there. So this Trinitarian relationship of God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is now worked out by saying, I then also believe in the church. So what does it mean then for us to have communion of the saints? What is that all about? So I think some definitions are helpful. So let's try this one. Holiness necessarily entails relationships. In the communion of saints, one cannot be in communion alone. That would be helpful for all of us in suburbia to know. Facebook doesn't count. (laughs) Or MySpace, if you think I'm Facebook hating. Sorry. Um, Holiness is, first of all, a relationship with God in Jesus Christ, the mediator of all holiness. Such a relationship is necessarily communal, for God's own holiness is being in communion, namely the communion of Father, Son, and Spirit dwelling together in love. To enter into fellowship with God is to enter into fellowship with all who share in the fellowship of God. To be in Christ is to be one with all who are in Christ. Our Lord prayed that those who believe in him may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, so that the world may believe that you have sent me in John 17. Jesus speaks of the union between himself and the Father as a mutual indwelling that is to be extended by his and the Father's indwelling in the community of believers. If you didn't track with me, here it is in summary. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all in communion with one another. And Jesus isn't simply your get-out-of-jail-free ticket to get out of hell. Jesus is your ticket into this Trinitarian life in which God is manifesting his love to the world and inviting all of us in to participate in what God is doing both now and in the world to come. Therefore, to be one with God in Christ is to be one with all whom Christ gave his life and is indwelling and will call and will one day raise. So I'll ask it again. Is the church nice or is it necessary? But let's, let's go further. I want to look at three things this morning. We've got a ridiculous amount of material to cover. That's probably my fault. All right, it is my fault. But nevertheless, I think it's really important. There are three things that we see in this text this morning that are are, uh, essential, really, for us to understand what it is to be in union with Christ and with one another. First of all, um, we have communion with Christ in his suffering. Secondly, we have communion with Christ in his song. Third, we have communion with Christ in his salvation. Um, Let me give you kind of the summary of where all this is going. Um, I'll give you the conclusion now, and we'll recap it again. Because of Christ's suffering, we are brothers and sisters. Because of Christ's singing, our song is a song of adoration rather than abandonment. 
And because of Christ's salvation, our ultimate help and hope is rooted in communion with him and with one another. Okay? That's where we're going to try and go and try and understand this morning. In Hebrews 1 and in Hebrews 2, we see the author to the Hebrews talking about um, all the various ways that God has spoken until the end of Hebrews 1. God has finally and fully spoken in who? He has spoken in his son, Jesus. And in Hebrews 2, we begin to now pay much more closer attention, as he says in verse 1, to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It, was, it has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower, while, uh, while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. But we see for a little while that Jesus was made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Verse 10, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom, all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Here's the first thing. How does all of this have to do with the church? Right there. When he calls them brothers. And then in verse 12, when he declares their name, when he declares God's name among his brothers in the assembly, the word is the church. The word that we see quoted over and over and over again, ecclesia, where we get the Greek, the, uh, the word ecclesiology, that is the study of the church. And so we are called brothers. How? Brothers and sisters. How? Through Jesus' suffering. Look at what it says. In in verse 9, Jesus suffered the agony of death. In verse 10, it was fitting that God, for him and by him all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should be the founder, the pioneer, the King, King James renders it, the captain of their salvation, perfect through suffering. When the son completed his suffering, he became the founder of our salvation. He received the appointment to lead the elect out of a life of slavery and sin to a life of eternal happiness in which we are sons and heirs with Christ. It is through Jesus' obedience, it is through Jesus' suffering that he has now given the appointment and the right to call us brothers and sisters. It is also a typology. Why would we expect that if Jesus got his inheritance through suffering, that our lot would be any different? 
Stop listening to people that tell you because they're a Christian, their life is just a bed of roses. Someone's lying. I'm not saying their life isn't good. I'm not saying there's not joy. I'm saying that life isn't easy for the followers of Jesus if they would expect to follow in the footsteps of Jesus who before his crown endured a cross and when he said to his disciples, anyone who would come after me must deny himself daily, take up his cross and follow me. It's through Jesus' suffering that we have our family title. It is through his suffering that we are called brothers. But then then he says something confusing here. For it's fitting that he, for him and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Does that mean that Jesus was somehow not perfect? We should... uh, Recognize that in Hebrews, the term to make perfect is to be understood as achieving the highest goal. So then throughout the book of Hebrews, to, be, to make perfect signifies that Jesus removed the sins of his people from the presence of God and thus by his sacrificial death on the cross consecrated the many sons and daughters. This perfection of Jesus, this, this achieving the highest goal of Jesus therefore pointed to the work of salvation that he performed on behalf of his people. The bond of humanity is seen in this word, brothers. We are united to Christ and to one another through this holy relationship. Jesus died for his people, redeemed them from curse and sin. And because of this work, he is not ashamed to call his people brothers. Through the suffering of Christ, we are united with him and with one another. As a church, we are a family. And that means that the kingdom of God in its manifest glory and its future reality is going to be some kind of neo-Nazi white supremacy hell. Because if you think there's just going to be some sort of whitewashed presence of a single ethnicity there, read the Bible again. So not only is it through his suffering that we are called brothers and sisters, there's the second aspect that we see going on here in this text, and it's through Christ's singing. So look at verse 12. Verse 12 says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. It is Jesus saying, I will tell of your name, my God, to my brothers. In the midst of the great congregation, I will sing your praise. Now, often when when a New Testament passage quotes the Old Testament, the broader context of the Old Testament passage is being invoked. So in this case, 
What we see being quoted here by the author of the Hebrews is Psalm 22, verse 22. Now, many of you know Psalm 22 because you know the very first words of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Gospels record these words on Jesus' lips as he hangs for his people on the cross. The psalmist's victory chant celebrating God's deliverance is what we see in Psalm 22, 22. This is, uh, but, but up until this point, Psalm 22 has been a, a litany of desperate cries to God. So why the sudden change? Why the move from abandonment to adoration? Dr. Mike Lodo says this. He says, the most profound lesson in Hebrews 2 teaches us about, the, that Hebrews 2 teaches us about worship is that because Jesus sang the first verses of Psalm 22, we don't have to sing them. Instead, we sing the verses of praise with him. Because Jesus cried out, abandoned, we can sing out, found. Because under the weight of our sin, Jesus declared himself a worm and not a man in Psalm 22, verse 6. So that each of us can now say that we are no longer a slave, but a son in Galatians 4, 7. The frown of God was upon his beloved son so that divine justice satisfied smiles at us. It is because Jesus sang the first 21 verses of the psalm that he can now invite us in to sing the remaining verses. Turn to Psalm 22 if you would. It's printed for you in your program, at least the part that I'm looking at. Verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. Verse 23, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. Who are the ones that are singing here? Who are the ones that the people of God, these brothers and sisters, are joining their voices with? It consists of the Israelites, the descendants of Jacob, and the offspring of Israel here in verse 23. It consists of the poor and the afflicted. Look at verses 24 and 26. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried for to him. Verse 26, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. So we see that the descendants of Jacob, the Israelites, are part of the ones joining into the song. The poor and the afflicted are part of the ones joining in the song. Who else? Verses 27 and 28, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For the kingship, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Who are the ends of the earth? Who are the ends of the earth? We know this from Acts 1. For you will be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and to where the uttermost parts of the earth. It is that promise that we are seeing fulfilled even in this space today. We are not Jewish by birth. We are not part of Jerusalem or Judea. We are the ends of the earth. And this is where the spirit of God is blown so that the kingdom of God would be expanded and made manifest. 
And so the Gentiles are a part of this crowd of worshiping saints. God is the king. He rules over the nations. And therefore, verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. You love it when preaching a text and the text preaches itself. If you want to see what God's doing in the nations, look here. Look at the song of the victorious king and those he's singing among. Who else is there? Verse 29, the prosperous ones of the earth. It's the rich. The rich are there. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. Who else is there? The dead, those who have gone down to the dust. This is a really important thing we'll talk about in a couple weeks when we look at, at, uh, at 1 Thessalonians 4. Who else is there? Verses 30 and 31. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. It is not only the it is not only Israelites, it is not only the poor and the afflicted, it is not only the Gentiles and the ends of the earth, it's not only the rich, it's not only those who have gone to death already, but it is future generations, a generation not yet born, who will be before the throne and among the company of the Lamb, singing the praises to God the Father. Jesus' song. is the song of the victorious king. As Dr. Ed Clowney says, Jesus Christ is the singing victor of the Psalms. The risen Savior sings in glory. He is not ashamed to call us brothers, but sings in the midst of his assembled saints in the heavenly Zion and on earth where two or three are gathered in his name. All these songs are Jesus' songs. They tell of who he is, and they speak of what he has done. And so it's no accident that in Hebrews we see this, um, we see this psalm referenced because it is Jesus, it's Jesus who bore the cry of abandonment so that we would loud the cry of found. And that leads us to the third thing we see in our text, is that we have communion in Christ's salvation. The cause of Christ's salvation, our ultimate help, our ultimate hope, is rooted in communion with him and with one another. Verse 13, Jesus is here quoting Isaiah 8, verses, uh, verses 16 and 17. Says, I will, and again, I will put my trust in him. And, and again, behold, I and the children God has given me. The children, the family that God has given me. Look at what Jesus has accomplished. He is now claiming us not just as surrogates, not just as, not just as, a bounty, he claims us as family. Verse 
verses 14 through 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That word right there that we see, this, this making propitiation, this, this, this verbal form that we see, it's used twice in the New Testament. The one other time it's used was that parable that Matt Frey preached on several weeks ago of the Pharisee and the tax collector. When the, when the Pharisee beat his chest and said, God, have mercy on me, what was he was actually saying? He was saying, God, make propitiation, make intercession, come in and do what I can't do. It's the same word that we see here, Jesus, our great high priest, doing. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Dr. Reggie Kidd says this, he says, Christians understand that since our problem sin includes body, mind, soul, and spirit, so does our solution. To heal us and rescue us, Jesus had to become one of us. The incarnation was not a drive-by salvation. Jesus had to come and is coming in the flesh. Thus, we look for new bodies, not for angels' wings. Dr. Kidd also says, we worship Jesus because it's the Son's divinity that gives him the right to forgive. And we worship alongside Jesus because the Son has become our brother and made his Father ours. The Son has become our brother and made his Father ours. This is why matter matters in worship. Baptismal waters are simultaneously our tomb, the death of the old man, and our mother, the birth of the new man, as Cyril of Jerusalem's fourth century bishop put it. Just as Jesus turned water into wine, then he now turns wine into blood so that in communion we become one body and blood with Christ, as we see in 1 Corinthians 10. In this way, we become Christ-bearers, a Greek word from which comes from the name Christopher. And as his body and blood are spread around our limbs, thus the kiss of peace at communion is not just any old greeting, but an expression of a union of souls. Because we have a great high priest in Jesus, because we are united with him, because we are his brothers, and he is not ashamed of us. All these things are, that are the promises of God are now the things that give us orientation to deal with the patterns of our lives. Communion and Christ's salvation and participation in the ongoing victory song of Alleluia versus abandonment is one, is one that we don't just simply pick up as we choose. Is the church necessary? Or is it nice? 
Is what we're doing right here, is this just a good thing to do or is it an essential thing to do? Is what God is feeding us from the table and washing us from the waters of baptism, are those lovely symbolic things or are those things essential to our life and godliness? We have to answer that question we have to listen to those who have gone before us. In 1619, the Belgic Confession says this. It says, we believe that since this holy assembly and congregation is the gathering of those who are saved and that there is no salvation apart from it, no one ought to withdraw from it, content to be by himself, regardless of his status or condition." It would have been anathema for the church to ever think that the the gathering of the people of God together as the church would be anything less than essential to their lives. And I'm not talking about building up of buildings. I'm not talking about running committees and programs. I'm talking about the people of God gathering together as the body of Christ I think that if we're going to say in the creed that we believe in the holy Catholic universal church and in the communion of saints, that if we're going to say that that's something that's not peripheral to our faith, but central to it, after all, what have I been saying now for eight weeks? It's in the center of the creed. It's not something that's optional for us to believe. The church is not a rotary club. It's not an AA meeting with a Christian veneer. It's not simply a club, a gathering of like-minded people. It is the body of Christ. So if we believe that the church is not peripheral to our faith, but is central to our creed, we now have to talk about how we treat the church and her members, not as peripheral, but central to our lives. So as we try and bring this plane in for a landing, I want to think for just a minute about ways in which it is easier tempting for us to wreck the church and ourselves. I'll give you three words. Insignificance, isolation, and idolatry. Insignificance, isolation, idolatry. I'll move quickly because I know we're shorter on time. First of all, insignificance. The church is nice, but not necessary. We'll be apart when it's convenient, but don't, don't need to see it as an essential thing that we orient our lives around. If you want to do damage, not only to your own heart, to your own walk with Christ, treat the church as insignificant. Moms and dads, ask yourself this. What family patterns are we putting in place now that we want our kids to inherit and pass on? Do our kids see the church as an essential part of the rhythm of our family or nice when it's convenient? And I'm not asking this to put on a guilt trip. I'm asking because if we believe that the church is central to our creed and faith, do we then live like it is? Here's the second thing. Isolation. 
If we want to wreck ourselves in the church, isolation. Consider the word, these words from Charles Spurgeon. He says, I know there are some who say, well, I've given myself to the Lord, but I do not intend to give myself to the church. Spurgeon says, now why not? His fictitious conversation answers and says, because I can be a Christian without it. Spurgeon says, are you quite clear about that? You can be as good a Christian by disobedience to your Lord's commands as by being obedient. Oh, Spurgeon. He says, what is a brick made for? To build a house. It's of no use for that brick to tell you that it's just as good a brick when it's kicking about on the ground as it would be in a house. It's a good-for-nothing brick. So you Rolling Stone Christians, I do not believe you're answering your purpose. You are living contrary to the life which Christ would have you live, and you are much to blame for the injury you do. It is simply not possible for us to say, I am a Christian, and then say, but the church is optional. Last thing, there can be idolatry. Ray Canada in his book on the creed says this. He says, do you want to know the best way to wreck a church? Go in with the expectation that everyone will do everything right. No one will hurt you. No one will step on your toes. Believe that the worship will always be to your liking and that everyone will always be friendly. You'll be terribly disappointed and you'll grow bitter. Maybe that's a whole other sermon some other time. But how many of us today have grown frustrated and bitter with the church? Maybe not outwardly. Maybe not even consciously. But this whole time I've been up here talking about is the church necessary or nice? There's been a little voice, a big voice, a loud voice saying, yeah, right. What do we do? You got a couple options. One, the text and I are wrong. That's cool. Let's talk about it. Option two, the text is right, but it doesn't change anything. Probably need to talk about that too. Option three. The text, all the other texts we didn't go to, Ephesians 4, all of 1 John, and others, they're right, and bitterness has creeped in. There's a disenfranchisement, there's a going through the motions. There's a yeah right about the church being necessary. And maybe it's not even nice. Maybe the alliteration breaks and the church is just a chore. What do we do? Well, let me propose this. It is possible that then we need to go before the Lord and repent. 
it is possible then that we need to go before the Lord and apologize for trying to form the church in our image rather than letting Jesus through the church form us in his. And perhaps then maybe also it is incumbent on us to listen to the words of the Father. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And believe that it is Jesus who gave his life for his people. It's Jesus who gave his life for his church. And it is Jesus who will one day raise his church as beautiful and as glorious. And as much as you or I think that it's up to us to make the church beautiful and glorious, it's not. It's up to us to walk in obedience, to be humble, and to let Jesus do what he has promised he will do. I don't know what your experience with the church is like. I'll tell you, as a pastor, sometimes I get really frustrated by it. That's not awkward to say. (laughs) I don't know what your expectations of the church are. I don't know how you're feeling right now. But here's what I know. That Jesus in his divinity has forgiven us our sins. And that Jesus in his humanity joins his voice with us, identifies with us in every respect, shares our frustration, but does not lose hope and invites us to believe in him and believe in what he is doing because the name that is declared, the, the voice that is singing out from among us is his. He is at work as imperfect as the church is, it is his bride.